Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and currently co-hosts this podcast. I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl and the wearer of hashtag Jill's Pins. Uh, today's pin is something that represents to me protecting democracy. And it seemed appropriate because today we are very proud to welcome James Clapper, who you likely have seen quite often on CNN, where he is a national security analyst. When James Clapper stepped down in January 2017 as the fourth United States Director of National Intelligence, he had been President Obama's senior intelligence advisor for six and a half years, longer than his three predecessors combined. He led the U.S. intelligence community through a period that included the raid on Osama bin Laden, the Maghazi attack, the leaks of Edward Snowden, and Russia's influence operation on the 2016 election. Before becoming the DNI, he was a three-star Air Force general and served as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency under President George H.W. Bush, Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, and Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency under President George W. Bush, and the first Director of Defense Intelligence within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. James was awarded the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the U.S.'s highest non-combat-related military award, and the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal. After retiring at the end of the Obama administration in 2017, he joined the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Center for a new American security as a distinguished senior fellow for intelligence and national security and wrote the New York Times bestseller Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence, published in 2018. Um, We are looking forward to talking about all of this and current events with him today. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jim. We are thrilled to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me. Jim, I'd like to start with something that became uh, quite an important news story this week, and that is something that to me seemed like the stuff that movies are made out of, something like the TV series The Americans. Um, It involves a former naval officer, a nuclear engineer, a current civilian uh, employee of our nuclear submarine program. He was arrested with his wife, who is a private school teacher, and they were trying to sell classified information to a foreign country about our uh, very important classified uh, program for keeping our submarines quiet so they can't be detected. He used very sophisticated encryption techniques, but very sloppy on other parts of it. He was lured by the FBI to a dead drop uh, in a public place so that they could see him and identify who he was so that it wasn't over the internet. And that's how they ended up capturing him. And, but the whole thing was discovered by what seems like luck. He sent a package of classified materials through the mail, and it was intercepted in the foreign country by their mail system. And they then turned it over to the FBI liaison in that country. We don't know what the country is. But that's where I'd like to start asking questions is, how common this kind of thing is, how often someone is caught just by luck. Well, I don't know the specifics of this case, obviously, but it's not uh, normally luck. And I think the specific tradecraft that was used is probably not going to be come out publicly, nor should it. Probably not. Uh, How often have there been 
internal spies selling information to foreign countries? Well, I don't, <clears throat> I don't have the numbers, but uh, at the, off the top of my head, but uh, there, there have been several cases of that. Um, certainly during my 50 years in intelligence, uh, I, I saw several of them, <clears throat> which were many of which were quite damaging. And, and I'm assuming that this one is pretty damaging because it related to how the Navy is keeping submarines quiet. And that's quite important now where um, surface vessels are easily targeted. Um, and so it's very important to be a submarine that can't be detective. Am I correct in that assumption? Well, I don't think uh, any damage was done because it's my impression that none of this information right. actually reached a foreign country. Right. And so that probably was because of the luck of getting this package interceptive. Um, well, again, and- I, don't, I, I, I don't know about whether it's luck or not, because all we're going on is what has been publicly released. Right, right. Um, I mean, if, so- if you reach out and you have a clearance and you engage somehow with a foreign country, uh, there are ways to, de- to determine that. I'll just leave it at that. Right. This does raise the issue, though, of the importance of counterintelligence versus the active act of spying. And I know most people in America, when they think of intelligence, think of our sending spies to other countries to do what he was doing inside the country. Um, is that a correct thing where really counterintelligence is as important or even more important than what we collect from foreign countries? Well, it's, it depends on the nature of the information in both cases. Uh, counterintelligence is an important function. We always have uh, the, the threat of adversaries who are trying to recruit our people who are in sensitive mm-hmm. positions. Um, and so... You know, vigilance is is the watchword there. So I, I, I wouldn't necessarily rank counterintelligence or intelligence as as less or more important. It really depends on on the information in question, in terms of what we're collecting and analyzing from foreign sources versus what is potentially at risk. So at, at a given time, yes, uh, information that's been revealed by a uh, defector, U.S. defector, could mm-hmm. be quite damaging. So it's, it's a relative thing, and there, there's a, a, a temporal dimension, but it, it's very hard to make an overall generalization about one being more important than the other. Okay. So let's move a little bit to domestic um, problems, because one of the issues that's concerning Victor and me right now that is of very current concern is the threat of domestic violence, not only in Washington, but in cities across America. Can you give us an assessment of how big a threat domestic violence is right now and the role that Intel uh, can have in preventing it from occurring, if it can, in fact, be prevented? I think in historical context, this was a subject that really wasn't on my scope at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I served as uh, director of national intelligence, um, we were concerned about foreign uh, extremism, but not not domestic. So ju- it just shows you how quickly uh, things have changed in this country. Um, and unfortunately, we do we do not have the same uh, legal tools to deal with it as we do in the case of foreign 
uh, uh, terrorism, foreign extremism. And what so are those potentially tools? Potentially quite serious. I'm what, sorry? what what tools do you think from the uh, foreign intelligence need to be um, developed? Well, we for don't have domestic. all the civil liberties and privacy protections for foreigners that we do for Americans. That's that's the big difference. So there are all kinds of strictures on surveilling and monitoring U U.S. persons that uh, don't exist in the case of foreign uh, foreign adversaries. Is is there in your view, a way to overcome the First Amendment? Uh, well, not, not overcome Congress, it. I mean, obviously, it, to it's honor not, it's it. It's not a question of overcoming the First Amendment. It, it's uh, so, so this is something would mean to be legislated by the Congress, right? Right. On, on what the the exact legal parameters could and should be for uh, surveilling U, U.S. citizens. The FBI is the lead for this, appropriately so, uh, but they don't quite have the same freedom and latitude they would if it were a, a foreign-induced uh, or foreign emanation uh, terrorist threat. Could you, uh, and let me just clarify, I didn't mean overcome the First Amendment. I mean to honor the First Amendment, but to be able to use effective tools to find the information we need to protect democracy. And uh, you know, I'm, I wear pins to send a message, and today's message is defending democracy, uh, which I think is extremely important, and democracy includes the First Amendment. So I, I don't want anyone misunderstanding what I said. I, I think we must honor it. But there is, don't you think, a way to honor the First Amendment but still enlarge the powers of the FBI to gather the information that we need to prevent things like January 6th from occurring? Well, the Congress, on behalf of the electorate, is going to have to decide that. And it really boils down, in my mind, to how much an individual citizen is willing to sacrifice for the common good. If you're willing to allow some uh, surveillance which may potentially touch you, even though you're completely innocent. And that's something that Congress has wrestled with, with the, the laws that we have now, nor, notably the FISA law, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, right. Section 702 specifically. And uh, it's a very complex uh, uh, issue. And uh, I think in the end, only the Congress can decide that. So I, I actually do have a follow-up to um, what we just talked about regarding the domestic threats. Um, you know, we see that Donald Trump isn't on social media anymore, but I'm wondering how likely you think another January 6th is to occur, even with, um, you know, all of these little outbursts in communities across America. Do you think that, you know, if in 2024 or 2022, some large-scale insurrection will happen again based off yeah, of the I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm not clairvoyant. But certainly the precedent has been set. Uh, where if somebody doesn't like the outcome of an election, uh, we'll tell we'll just promulgate the big lie, and of course that uh, sows doubt uh, and distrust in uh, fundamental uh, uh, hallmark of a, of uh, our democracy, which is elections. So yeah, right. I, I think there could certainly be a recurrence of this, and I hope it doesn't become a habit. Where uh, the outcome of every election that somebody doesn't like uh, is is questioned, and where doubt is cast on the veracity of our election system, which in 2020 was very secure. 
I completely agree. I, I want to move into t- intelligence, um, which has been crucial throughout our history, but was identified as a failure by the 9-11 Commission. As a result, they recommended changes, including coordination through a new position, the Director of National Intelligence. Um, Perhaps my generation and many people out there might be confused as, as to the role of the DNI and the different agencies coordinated by the DNI. And uh, because of your role in the intelligence community, I think you're the perfect guest to explain the difference between the CIA, FBI, and um, also more specifically the role of the DNI. Well, the uh, 9-11 Commission, which was uh, established to investigate what happened uh and what went wrong during the, uh, the the attack. And one of their conclusions was that there needed to be a overall coordinator leader for the intelligence community who had no other responsibilities. The prior construct was that this, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, in fact, this goes back to the National Security Act in 1947, that the director of the Central Intelligence Agency wore a second hat, so to speak, that is what was called the Director of Central Intelligence. And when the occasion called for it, that person would lead uh, the intelligence community. Uh, my observations uh, over about 20 years of observing DCIs, Directors of Central Intelligence, up close and personal, was that sooner or later, mostly sooner, they got consumed with agency-centric issues, which is quite understandable. I've served myself as an agency director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and later on the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and I can attest that running these intelligence agencies is a full-time, all-consuming job in and of itself. So the notion of having somebody double up when the occasion called for it uh, is difficult. It's very hard. It it's somewhat reminds me of part-time help at the post office at Christmas time. It's just very difficult uh, to make that construct work. So, 9/11 conc- uh, uh, Commission concluded that what the country needed was an overall leader coordinator for the entire intelligence community, to include the big five, so-called big five agencies, four of which are embedded in the Department of Defense. That is the National Security Agency, which conducts signal intelligence, cyber, cybersecurity. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which attends to imagery, imagery analysis, mapping, charting, and geodesy. The National Reconnaissance Office, which fields, uh, acquires and operates uh, our overhead reconnaissance uh, systems. And the Defense Intelligence Agency, which as the name implies, uh, focuses on mil- military intelligence. The 9-11 Commission, and another recommendation they made was a greater inclusion of the, of the FBI in the intelligence community. So you can count the FBI as a sixth component, a sixth agency component, and the FBI f- fulfills a unique mission in that it straddles both worlds of intelligence and law enforcement. It is unique like that. Then each, each of the services have, military services have a uh, intelligence chief, and there are five other cabinet departments that have intelligence elements. So that totes up to seven, well, 17 during my time, now 18 with the addition of the U.S. Space Force as a separate uh, service. And so the full-time job of the Director of National Intelligence is to be the integrator, coordinator, collaborator, and the champion for that 
And that those are not natural acts in a bureaucracy. So it's better to have a, so a full-time champion and advocate for that. Ergo, that's the rationale for having a director of national intelligence. Mm -hmm. well, I, well, I forgot to mention, very important agency, of course, is the Central Intelligence Agency, right. mm -hmm. uh, which uh, s still enjoys a very prominent place in, in the U.S. Intelligence Committee. So that rounds out the five agencies, Foreign Defense, CIA, plus the FBI, and then the other staff elements, if you will, uh, in the military services and cabinet departments like Treasury, Homeland Security, etc. Well, not only did you coordinate uh, intelligence, but you also changed the way in which intelligence um, was handled. And this is something that you talked about in your book. Um, you worked as uh, director of uh, defense intelligence and as DNI. Can you tell us about the problems that you felt needed to be changed and the solutions you implemented in that role? Well, uh, I was not. I was the fourth DNI, so I, I, I wasn't starting with a blank piece of paper. Uh, a lot of good work had been done to establish uh, uh, policies and structures before I got there, and I just I kind of refined them a bit and continued uh, uh, the march, if you will, uh, of integration. And uh, having been an agency director myself for, for nine years, I tried to avoid uh, micromanaging uh, the agencies since you know they're typically very competently led. I'd been a service intelligence chief, so I kind of understood what they did. And I had served as uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Pentagon. So those are the three jobs, agency head, service intelligence head, and the head of intelligence in a cabinet department. I'd done all three of those jobs, so I sort of understood what each one did, tried to stay out of their knickers, so to speak, and and attempt to, and that was a challenge to my, my staff at the Office of Director of National Intelligence, what can we bring that's value added to this whole process? What can we do to make the, the entirety of the intelligence community better? And it's proof of the old saw that the, you know, the sum is greater than the parts. And that's the approach I try to take. Yeah, and you had another interesting government position that goes back before you were uh, DNI. Um, that is your role as director of the Department of Defense's National Imagery and Mapping Agency, which is now known as the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And I, I presume because of your time there, um, th that's part of the reason why I saw you on CNN talking about the recent Pentagon report on UFOs. Um, this is an issue that has really, I guess, sparked conversations in my generation. I think I'm a skeptic, but um, tell me what you think about aliens and, and UFOs out there? Well, actually, I didn't, uh, it didn't come up, frankly, when I was uh, uh, director of what's now National Geospatial Intelligence mm -hmm. ATI. It, it did come up when I served as uh, Chief of Air Force Intelligence back in mm -hmm. the late 80s. Um, and I think it's, it speaks to the uh, breadth of the challenges that the intelligence community has, and, and specifically, uh, uh, Avril Haynes, uh, as it's the current DNI, uh, to deal with UFOs. What I find is an interesting phenomenon is UFOs seems to be a U.S.-only phenomenon. You don't hear about UFOs from other countries. There are not cults in other countries devoted to UFOs. It seems to be primarily in the United States. Are you skeptical of them? Well, I... 
I, I, you know, I, I guess uh, you know, open-minded is is a better uh, uh, is a better way to describe it. If you know the intelligence, and I think this is why it's not a bad idea. The intelligence community be in charge of gathering whatever data there is on UFOs, um, and uh, you know, the White House asked the DNI to to put together a report on it. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, it was kind of inconclusive with no real solid evidence about uh, extraterrestrial ter- uh, presence. But in the meantime, we, it's important to collect and document uh, reporting and evidence of this uh, for the future. Uh, I mean, I, 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 we shouldn't, we earthlings shouldn't be so arrogant <laughs> to think that we're the only form of life in the universe. There's undoubtedly other forms of life out there. But has the evidence presented itself uh, that would prove that conclusively and empirically? Well, that's that remains to be seen, I think. Well, Victor and I are very big believers that facts matter. And so gathering facts yeah. is, is okay, or at least gathering reports. Um, and, and let's go back to when you were DNI in the Obama administration and— um, because it was a newly created position and there was skepticism about whether it was possible to manage all of these disparate agencies with their own very um, well-honed responsibilities. And did you find that there was any difficulty in cooperation among the different agencies? And did you have a particular goal in mind to accomplish that you felt needed to be done before you left that position? Well, my goal in any job I had in the intelligence community during the 50 years I served was to leave uh, whatever I was doing better than when I got there. Uh, And I think that's uh, a realistic and and modest objective. And that's all I tried to do is make it better than it was. And my successors, I assume, tried to do the same thing. And that's all in, in a, if you're running a large complex 7 by 24 global enterprise uh, that's that's about I, I think uh, about all that's 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 realistic were there any specific changes that you uh, implemented that you think made it better well I think I you know I tweaked the organization a little bit of uh, what I inherited um, which I you know like any bureaucratic thing, uh, sort of hard to measure whether that, I think it improved things. I thought it made things more clearer to to Mm -hmm. who does what to whom, uh, particularly on the Office of Director of National Intelligence staff. But that's, those are largely inside baseball uh, bureaucratic things that I think the general public wouldn't, wouldn't notice. Well, one thing for sure, you were valued, and I, I want to read something that uh, President Obama said um, about you. He said when he nominated you for the position that James Clapper possesses a quality that I value in all my advisors, a willingness to tell leaders what we need to know, even if it's not what we want to hear. And it was something that I experienced, of course, during the Watergate era, when if John Dean had been willing to speak up sooner to tell Nixon what he didn't want to hear, the outcome might have been very different. We might not have had the the crimes that we had. So let's talk about how important that element 
of honesty is in leaders uh, in general, and especially for those advising the president on intelligence? Well, I, I think it's quite important. Um, and there, there is, you know, this suggests the uh, bumper sticker motto of uh, uh, truth to power, um, which is a motto, I think, not something to be taken literally. Um, rarely will intelligence, which constantly deals with ambiguity, uh, come up with the absolute truth about anything. And what you're more likely doing is giving your best judgment, your best assessment uh, of a given situation when, where you are using, you're relying on incomplete facts and you're relying on uncertainty. And, and the best you can do as an intelligence officer is reduce uncertainty. You can never eliminate it. Mm. And that's valuable for a policymaker or a decision maker, whether he or she is in the Oval Office, or if I can stretch the metaphor, an Oval Foxhole. <laughs> and the objective is to reduce risk and, and perhaps save lives. So in the course of that, I always consider that a sacred public trust. And it was incumbent on, on me to uh, be as honest as I, and straight about it uh, as I could, and as I often had occasion to do with President Obama, admit it when we were wrong. Hmm. Um, sometimes being candid and straight and blunt is not um, the politically correct thing to do. And I got myself in trouble sometimes uh, in Congress for, for doing that. But that's, to me, is the only way to be. So from your observation of reporting, at least, of how the intelligence community reported to President Trump, during his uh, administration, do you feel that there was some movement away from speaking the whole truth and speaking truth to power that could have been detrimental to the country? Well, um, I, I think uh, during D Dan Coates's uh, tenure, as as the two years plus that he was he served mm -hmm. as DNI, he was my immediate successor. I think uh, you know, he believed in that concept of truth to power and and said so uh, when the occasion called for it at, at some expense to him. Uh, thereafter, when uh, uh, some others were inserted in the position, uh, can't say. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I know how it was, but it's not. To me, it's dangerous if you're shading or tainting or selectively omitting uh, uh, critical intelligence that uh, the president needs to know. I, I guess I'm basing my question on the reporting of how the daily intelligence briefings were colored, so to speak, or reduced. Well, I don't, uh, I don't buy that. Uh, I know the two incumbents who served as uh, President Trump's briefers, both mm -hmm. of them are longstanding professionals. And I believe they uh, they told it like it was. Well, that's an that's very good to know. Um, are there any particular challenges from the Obama administration that uh, you can share with us that you had as DNI? Well, there's you know hardy perennials, I guess. Um, 
I'm not quite sure what you mean by the question, but certainly a lot of, I mean, issues that confronted us the day I walked in the door as DNI and the day I left were still there. So terrorism, uh, cyber threats, climate change, uh, disease, you know, the, the, the four main adversaries of China, Russia, North, uh, North Korea, and Iran. Well, we had those challenges when I walked in the door, and they had those challenges when I walked yeah. out. So, uh, again, those are kind of constants. So one accomplishment uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration was finding and killing uh, Osama bin Laden. Since intelligence was really the key to finding him, um, can you walk us through the process that led to finding um, and then killing bin Laden? Well, it was an uh, exercise in uh, patience, per- perseverance, and teamwork. Uh, the CIA gets, appropriately so, lion's share of the credit for uh, tracking down Osama bin Laden, but it, uh, finding him and taking him out would not have occurred without the participation of the National Security Agency and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency as well. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a, text- a classic textbook uh uh, partnership between the intelligence community and, in this case, the special ops community. It was uh, really well done. And I think probably a high watermark, uh, certainly for me personally, uh, during my time in intelligence, and it, it, it represented closure for the country and for the intelligence community and for all of us personally who were around to during the the attack of 9-11. Do you think this was proof of the value of a DNI coordinating intelligence efforts? Well, you'd like to think so, but happily, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to say or, or do anything because, and the reason is, is a clear mission and what was needed to execute the mission. So... Uh, the, I, the DNI, as DNI, didn't have to make any grand pronouncements about uh, cooperating and integrating and all that because that, it just happened. Mm-hmm. Well, it was remarkable. And um, you've also been praised for the progress the intelligence community made to open doors to uh, the LGBTQ community. Are you able to tell us about how the LGBTQ community, uh, I guess, the intelligence staff were treated prior to your leadership and then when you assumed office? Well, gays particularly, uh, if you were outed, if it was learned that you, you were gay and you were in, in a, uh, an intelligence position requiring a clearance, and they all do, uh, you're out. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible waste of talent. And if you think about it, the intelligence community should not just look like America, it should look like the world for what it's observing and trying to understand. So the more inclusive, the more broad-gauged the population of and more representative of all sectors of our population are represented in the intelligence committee, it, it makes for a better intelligence committee. So it's not all about altruism. It's about the business of getting the mission done. And it's better when you're inclusive. Another area that um, I want to pursue is women um, and how they have uh, fared in the intelligence community. Of course, the current DNI is a woman, Avril Haynes, 
Um, and the last CIA director, not the current one, but the, the last one was Gina Haspel. But in, in general, um, and of course, we can think of Valerie Plame uh, as a famous CIA operative. But how important, I mean, you've discussed that it is important to be representative of the world. Um, what are some ideas for enhancing diversity in the intelligence community? Well, uh, every year the intelligence community is required by by the Congress to uh, report on progress on equal opportunity and diversity. And the history has been the intelligence community has made very small incremental improvements over the years. Still lags behind both the federal workforce in general and the public for that matter in terms of uh, female representation, particularly at the more senior ranks. The same is true of, of minorities. Um, you know, the history of the intelligence community is white male, going back to World War II. And in some sense, we're still uh, striving to overcome that, that white male-dominated culture yeah. that prevailed in the intelligence community for years. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact I had a lot to do with the um, uh, first woman to serve as director of one of the major agencies, Tish Long, who first woman to serve as uh, the NGA director, uh, followed by Betty Sapp, who was uh, superb as uh, director of the NRO for a total of seven years, one mm -hmm. of the most effective directors of the NRO ever. And of course, my deputy was absolutely magnificent, Stephanie O'Sullivan, is a principal deputy of uh, uh, national intelligence, uh, also a first, and uh, succeeded by Sue Gordon. So those are very important, but they are, they are more uh, symbols, they're more symbolic than reflective of the general uh, population of senior women uh, in the intelligence community. And it's just something that I think the intelligence community leadership understands and is striving uh, to do better. And so I think it's a good thing that we have... Uh, you know, Gina Haspel was the first female director of, of the CIA. We now have the top two leaders in the intelligence committee are women, uh, Avril and, uh, and Dr. Stacey Dixon. So those are important. They are great role models. And, and I think that in itself will serve to, to bring more women into the, uh, into the workplace. Uh, women have, you know, uh, family responsibilities. Uh, Sue Gordon's a great example of someone who went away for seven years and then came back and still had an eminently successful uh, uh, career. So these are, uh, and, and the same is true of uh, minorities uh, that uh, are underrepresented, particularly the senior ranks. And it's just something that uh, you have to work at. There's no silver bullet. Right. No, but I think you've pointed out that Role models make a difference. If young girls can see someone in that position, it's now little girls grow up saying, well, I could be vice president of the United States because they've seen a female in that role. They now see a female who's the DNI. They could aspire to that. Um, so I think those, I don't want to minimize how important role models are. Um, but I want to move to a different subject, which is to do with General Milley. And um, 
the attacks that he has suffered as a result of his conversation with the his Chinese counterpart, General Xi. Um, and also, he came under attack for suggesting that um, what I would call history, uh, but is being called CRT, um, is being attacked for those things. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any um, opinions about either of those subjects um, and, and how appropriate General Milley's actions were. It, it, from what we've heard, it was a fully staffed conversation. The Secretary of Defense knew about it and actually had asked him to make the call. So it seems like within... And he was acting on intelligence, which brings it back to you, which was there was intelligence suggesting that China was concerned that something was going to happen and they might have taken preemptive action and he wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So um, any comments on that? Well, I think General Milley has uh, uh, navigated uh, some unprecedented uh, rough shoals uh, as no other chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has ever encountered in the history of the position. And as a very unique circumstance uh, with President Trump. So as best I can tell, uh, you know, all I know is what I read, uh, I don't think he did anything inappropriate. And, uh, you know, his dialogue with foreign counterparts, I, that, that's a routine thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as though he went in a closet and did it all by himself, or didn't make it known to others. Right. So I, I don't, I don't see anything uh, inappropriate. And and in terms of critical race theory, uh, which, as I said, I would just consider teaching history. Um, and you've mentioned how important diversity is. So, isn't it a good idea then to teach something along the lines of critical race theory, which is widely misinterpreted as being well unfortunately that, that term itself yeah. uh has taken on uh, a life of its own and has uh i'll say a very flexible meaning yeah. uh depending on the interpreter uh, i do think it's appropriate that students when they're in school learn the facts the history of this country uh and it wasn't always uh you know, the shining city on the hill, and people ought to understand that. That's 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 part of our part of our heritage. And if you know, people want to call that critical race theory. Well, okay, uh, that's their choice. I just think that the empirical facts of uh, the way uh, people were treated, uh, the history of slavery in this country. Uh, what happened in Reconstruction, you know, the, the real reason the Civil War was fought. People, you know, kids should understand that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It needs to be rebranded uh, because just the word critical in that seems to suggest that it is uh, a negative thing, whereas well, it's, I think yeah, it, it's, it, uh, it, it's not meant it as is, critical. It's meant it's as critical. Right. It, yeah, and it's, it's I think it's, and, it, and, it, and it's original... Uh, uh, life, it was very much a legal yes. uh, uh, concept uh, and pretty arcane uh, the way it was it was addressed, but it's been broadened and expanded conveniently right. into something else. 
right? But I think we should call it something else now because uh, it isn't critical in the sense of being uh, criticizing. It is critical as in important. It's an important uh, race theory about, and it was started as simply looking at the laws of America and how they were impacted. But I think we can talk about maybe teaching black history. And that would be important, as you said, for students to know. I also think in this era of of, uh, what the Rand Corporation cleverly and aptly calls truth decay, that uh, yeah. uh, courses in critical thinking <laughs> yes. uh, for, for young kids, certainly no later than middle school, is absolutely requisite. So they learn not to believe everything they see, read, and hear on the Internet. Yeah. That is the I most mean, important I... thing ever that you've just yeah. said. Victor I, and I are big I, proponents of critical thinking skills. For sure. I mean, one of my professors um, who this year, because I started college a few weeks ago, he said, um, you know, I want to train you guys to be trained skeptics, uh, which I think is a good term for it. You know, being skeptical of what you see and questioning the world. Um, But uh, just to change topics a little bit, um, as you've said in your book and during today's conversation, um, intelligence has played such a big and vital role in combating many of the domestic and international challenges we face. But one of, I think, the turning points for the intelligence communities is the 2016 election, particularly how the community collected evidence of Russia's assault on our election uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, Can you talk about the significance of that and how it may have damaged the intelligence community or at least the perception of it to the public? Well, um, you know, I guess, first of all, the first observation to make is Russians have a long history of interfering in elections, theirs and other people's. (laughs) <laughs> and we have records, of course, going back to Cold War days where the Russians attempted to in- influence the outcome of elections. Normally, very ham-handed and obvious. 2016, though, was, was very different. Uh, and, uh, when we, and all revelation didn't occur in one day. So when we began, to, when we understood uh, the magnitude, depth, and aggressiveness of the Russian campaign to sow doubt, discord, and distrust in this country uh, was really quite disturbing, disturbing to me personally. Uh, I've seen a lot of bad stuff in 50 years in intelligence, but no, nothing had bothered me viscerally more when I fully understood what the Russians were trying to do, which is erode the very fabric of our democratic society, and they were wildly successful. So they, using social media, which was different than in the past, they had messages for everybody. Black Lives Matter, white supremacists, pro-Nazi, anti-Nazi, pro-Muslim, anti-Muslim, didn't matter. Because all they were interested in is sowing doubt, discord, and distrust in this country, and they succeeded. And I find that very disturbing. And they clearly played favorites in the election. They did all they could to help Donald Trump and all they could to hurt Hillary Clinton. And, of course, we reported that, uh, as we had been asked to do, directed to do, by President Obama. So the uh, irony is that the very fact that we were trying to be neutral and objective uh, made us political. And I've often wondered, well, if we just ignored the Russians and never reported it, would that have been better? I don't think so. I think uh, that... Uh, that that's something the intelligence community needed to do, and I believe we we stepped up to it. And I think I'm very proud of the report, the intelligence community assessment that we we produced, in the time we had to produce it, 
It's undergone all kinds of intense scrutiny, uh, far more time spent scrutinizing that report than was done, that was committed to doing it. So, yeah, we're, uh, we were accused uh, of, of being political, being a tool of the Obama administration, which certainly wasn't the case. How much uh, do you think Donald Trump tarnished the role and the perception of intelligence officials during his time in office? Well, he roundly criticized them for uh, giving their best judgment in public uh, at a worldwide threat assessment. It was 2019 or so, 2018, I don't remember what it was. but And so he personally attacked uh, the intelligence community leaders who spoke what they felt was the truth, their best assessment of uh, North Korean threat, uh, ISIS, etc., and you know, roundly criticized them. So that's you know that's that's not good, <laughs> and that is actually uh, an attack on the intelligence community uh, at large. He attacked them before he attacked the intelligence community before I left. On January 10th of 2017, you know, characterized the intelligence community as Nazis uh, for uh, incorrectly uh, accusing the intelligence community of leaking the dossier, which was widely available by and held by many media outlets. Yeah, I mean, so I, I wonder what work you think the intelligence community has to do to change the perception of their capabilities and what you would suggest to be done in order to improve their reputation? Do what they're doing. Uh, just keep working away a day in and day out. Do what they can to defend the country and, and support uh, our, our policymakers and our leaders. And there, there's no, uh, you know, Hail Mary thing here that the Intelligence Committee can do that's going to make everybody love us. The Intelligence Committee there has always had an aura of suspicion about it certainly for as long as I was in it and before that, simply because what it does is secret. And unfortunately, the intelligence community has some history of abuses. So there's always going to be an aura of suspicion about what the intelligence community does. Well, one way to attempt to attenuate that is transparency. Try to be as open uh, as you possibly can, explain what the intelligence community does, why it does it and how it does it. Just remember that adversaries go to school on that very same transparency. So you always have the risk-gain decision to make. Do I allow this to be exposed to the public in the interest of gaining their trust and confidence in us? Or should I be more cautious because I don't want to give an advantage to an adversary who would take advantage of that very same transparency? Those are very important points. And um, I, I want to talk more about the First Amendment and other civil rights within America. Um, and because as I was listening to you, it reminded me, when I was general counsel of the Army, one of my responsibilities had to do with the intelligence, Army intelligence. And there was a very big case in Berlin at the time, which led me to impose on the intelligence community a requirement that they come to me before they surveilled any Americans overseas, which previously they had been free to do. Um, you can imagine that at first the head of 
Army intelligence was not in favor of this. When I left at the end of the administration, he said to me that I had helped them be much more respected because I had never denied them the right to do something if they could justify the case. I, I used basically Title III, which is the um, search requirements for an American in America. And so are there ways like that that would make the CIA seem less nefarious and less secret um, and more under control? Or would that be too burdensome? Well, the CIA doesn't really have a domestic mission. Uh, its domestic mission is uh, debriefing of U.S. citizens who travel overseas mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. So they're very much focused on the foreign intelligence mission. So the kind of thing you're talking about, surveillance of U.S. citizens and U.S. persons, at least in non-electronic non form, is uh, pretty much the province of of the CIA. Right, but I, now, the services, the military services have a counterintelligence and a personal security responsibility mm -hmm. as well. Uh, just before I left, the DOD instruction on how to do this was redone. It took about seven years to redo the DOD instruction that applies to all the services. Very complex, very technical uh, thing on to govern what the military services or any of the intelligence services that are in the Department of Defense can do. Electronic surveillance, even more complex, uh, simply because in the heyday of the Cold War, we had two separate mutually exclusive telecommunication systems, one dominated by the Soviet Union, one dominated in the West by the, by the U.S. It was a rare, rare occurrence when you ever saw a reference to a U.S. person in the Soviet-dominated telecommunication system. Mm. Well, along comes the internet. Now they're, all the communications are all mixed up. So you have hundreds of millions of people every day conducting billions of innocent transactions, but all mixed up among them are nefarious people conducting nefarious acts. And so the challenge is how do you separate uh, the two and pick out only the nefarious actors doing nefarious things and keep and shielded uh, the innocent people doing innocent things. And in an electronic context, that is extremely difficult. So the question is, really, not so much incumbent on, on the uh, agencies and the people that execute this, but rather, how much is an individual citizen willing to, to understand what goes on and, and willing to accept it? Mm-hmm. You know, we stop at stop signs. We go to the airport early to get to go through TSA. Well, why do we do those things? We do them for the common good. And so it is with, with surveillance. That might be a good place for us to stop, but I think Victor has at least one question about um, careers in intelligence and what you might advise. So, Victor, do you want to go ahead with that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I'm wondering, given your time in public service um, and in intelligence, what you think is the biggest lesson you've learned during your time there? And then um, maybe just advice for young people who might be interested in exploring a career in intelligence and what that might look like if uh, they're unsure. Well, 
the reason I stuck with it so long, at first I grew up in it. My father was a, a Army signal intelligence officer for 28 years, so I probably inherited the gene from him. <laughs> but I, I think um, there is, and I found this in my travels, pre-pandemic travels around the college and universities, that there's still a tremendous attraction for young people to public service. And of course, I would uh, try to interest people in specifically in intelligence, something in national security, but particularly intelligence. And it's being a part of something bigger than yourself, uh, serving the country, and importantly, the caliber of the people that you get to work with. And that was one of the major, and lots of things have changed in the intelligence community, but the caliber of the people has pretty much stayed very high. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that attracted me. When I retired from the military in 1995, after 32 years, I guess, in the Air Force, and I was in industry for six years, and I never really got the psychic income from that that I did from public service. And uh, I always uh, convey that to young people contemplating a career, even if you don't want to make it a lifetime career, just to do it for a while to have had that experience and that exposure, uh, I think is, uh, is a good thing and make, makes, makes you a better citizen. Well said. I, I agree with you. The joy that I had in all the times I was in government service far exceeded my, my private law practice, um, although I did love my corporate career in international. But it is something that young people should really consider. I never thought of that as saying, at least try it out, um, mm -hmm. because it is very rewarding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, uh, making the owner of the company I was working for richer never really motivated me <laughs> that much. <laughs> well, you've well, motivated a lot of people by yes. your uh, role model and uh, by all you've accomplished. So we thank you for spending time with us and for spending time in our government protecting us. So thank you nice. very much. Well, thank, thank you, you. Thank you very much, Victor and uh, Jill. Thank you for that. And thank you for your service as well. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today with uh, Director James Clapper. We hope you enjoyed it and that you will follow us and uh, sign up for our podcast so that you can hear us every week. Thank you very much for joining us.